Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I am going to be your host for this podcast. My name is Kevin Estella. And, you know, usually when I start a podcast, I like to start off with uh, some very wise words. And I'm going to introduce this guest in a second, but I'm going to see if this guest can uh, determine where these wise words came from. Oh. Here we go. Be happy with what you have yeah. while you work for what you want. Do you know who said that? I did. Yes, In our did. yearbook. Yes. Well, your yearbook. <laughs> well, my yearbook. You were a year behind me, I, I think, I was right? one year behind you. Yep. And uh, I actually have a printout. And I even Aww. have the printout from- And I still firmly believe in that. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to uh, a podcast now with two people that can claim- Ready for this one? Oh, boy. Bristol Central High School. Look I, at I that. Wore, I wore it. I love it. <laughs> the Rams. That's right. Um, guys, you're listening to a podcast with two alumni of Bristol Central High School and St. Joseph's School. St. Joseph's as well. Yep. Yeah. Look at look at that photo. That was... Oh my gosh. Right? 1997. Look at that. What an original nickname too, huh? Des. I know it does. I mean, I still stick with that. But yeah. I mean, that was in the big perm days. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. But... I'm still proud of that picture. That's not too bad. <laughs> and most people tell me I haven't changed too much. So that's pretty good. So we're not, we're not going to use your last name on this. Because, that's cool. Yep. You know, I don't want a bunch of creepers finding you unless you want creepers yeah. finding you. Well, no. I mean, unless you are a very nice gentleman who makes a good living, then go ahead and creep. Okay. So I'm just it, teasing. Yeah. <laughs> she may or may not be. So guys, uh, so Des is with me. Uh, Des and I, uh, or Desiree and I graduated from, uh, the same high school we graduated from the same middle school and she is now working in a career that i think is really awesome and i was like i need to get her on the podcast to talk about it and that is a flight nurse career yes so if you've ever seen a serious traffic accident where there's a whole bunch of people who are in need of help and you're like well how are they even getting get an ambulance in here many times they'll fly one in in the form of a I believe the technical term is rotary wing aircraft. Rotor wing. Yes. Rotor well, wing. rotary or rotor wing. We say rotor wing a lot. So Desiree is one of the nurses that you're going to find on a helicopter when it comes in to save your hide. And we're going to talk all about the career that she's in, maybe a little bit of our hometown and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yes. So let's get going. So first off, what makes you decide I want to risk my life jumping into a helicopter and fly and save people? Well, it was cool. So I wanted to be cool like that. So um, it actually, I was in nursing school at Quinnipiac University. That's where mm -hmm. I went. I went to Boston University first and then transferred to Quinnipiac. And while I was in nursing school, one day a flight nurse came in to talk to our class and he walked in in his flight suit and he showed us a little PowerPoint and I was just completely in awe. And I thought, this is just the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, I want to look like this guy. I want to do what he does. And so I had that in the back of my brain. And our senior year of nursing school, we did what you call like, in, well, I guess internships. And so you choose kind of what field you think you want to go into. We did our clinicals at Yale Hospital, Yale New Haven, and um, I chose to go to the ER. And I walked in there and I, when I tell you that I left with the biggest migraine I've ever had and felt like the whole world had run over me, that's how it felt. And um, I didn't know what had just happened. But one of my professors, and I wish I remember her name, but she was one of the adjunct professors. She said to me, she's like, I just want you to give it another chance. I feel like that's where you're meant to be. That's your personality. So I told her she was crazy. And then I said, okay, I'll, I'll go back one more time. I don't know what happened on that second time, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden I was in love. Emergency medicine was what I wanted. So as we were talking before we started this podcast, 
I really believe God puts you exactly where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. So that, I guess a couple months after that, uh, we had a job fair at the college. And um, I went up to the Hartford Hospital booth because they have Lifestar back at home in Connecticut. And I said, I want to work for you because I want to fly on the helicopter. What was funny was the lady that was at the booth turned and she looked at me. She goes, well, that's what I do. So I started talking to her. Her name was Jody. Thanks, Jody, for putting me on my path. And um, we just kind of started talking about it. And she said, you know, hey, let's get you hooked up with the ER director. So when I went to interview, I didn't realize I was behind the eight ball. And when I went to interview, um, she said, well, I don't have any openings right now. And I was really upset. And when I left there, I was like, man, I was too late. She said, I already filled my new grad positions. Well, I think later that afternoon, she called me and she said, Hey, I saw something in you and I was able to get another new grad position and mm -hmm. we'd love to have you. So I started working in the ER as a new grad level one trauma center. Um, I threw up on the way to work most days. I was so nervous, scared to death. I, I mean, it was crazy. People just coming in and it never stopped and you saw the worst of the worst. Um, but while I was there, I met up with this man, Michael Frakes and Michael is still, he's, he's very famous in the flight world. Um, he writes a lot of stuff. He, he writes exams for stuff. He's just really well known. So he, um, he, we became friends and I told him, I said, I want to do what you do. So tell me what to do. And so he guided me on that path and I followed everything he said to a T. And then I started flying about four years later, I think. So now backing up a little bit mm -hmm. before that decision, what made you initially want to go into nursing? Like, was there an experience as a kid where you were like, wow, a nurse saved someone? Or was it one of those things where you're just like, I just think it's interesting? Or no, I actually wanted to be a doctor. Um, that was my first path. And that's what I started with at Boston University. And then I got to thinking about how I, I don't really know why I decided to do that. I think part of it was when you're the kid who gets good grades in school and people are like, oh, are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be a doctor? And I, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And so that was kind of my path. But then I started thinking about how long I was going to have to be in school to do that. And my mother was the one who actually said, you know, well, what about nursing? And I was like, well, nursing's, you know, not as, uh, I don't know, it's not as good as being a doctor. I never really thought about nursing. But then I just kind of started to think about it and decided to do that. So switched over to nursing. And the great thing about my job now is that I get to, I'm not a physician, but I get to do things that physicians do that nurses aren't allowed to do, but it's written into our scope of practice. And so I kind of get the best of both worlds, but I didn't have to go to medical school, residency and all that stuff. Um, and I work under the medical direction of a physician. I just love it. It just totally ended up being what... I needed in my life so so you say that you throw up on on the way to work a few times <laughs> yes quite a few times i can only imagine what it's like to be in the helicopter for your first ride mm -hmm. when you realize like this is for real now mm -hmm. um obviously there has to be some type of training leading up to the first time that you get brought out there so you're not on a helicopter uh, going out, rescuing people unless they've already tested that you can survive a helicopter ride yes. what is the training like for that uh for that first call, like leading up to that first call, like what do they put you through? So um, I knew I could ride in a helicopter because I rode along with Michael on Lifestar a few times. And so I knew that when that thing started up, my adrenaline started pumping and this was, this was amazing. Um, so I knew I wanted to do it because he really let me see what it was like. 
And then when you get the job as a flight nurse, it's a really rigorous training. They want you to come in with, at a minimum, three years of experience as a nurse. I really recommend more than that because I always tell people that you want to be the nurse that everybody came to for help. When the crap was hitting the fan, sickest patients come in, you're the charge nurse, you're the one that runs in and everybody feels better because you're there. So that takes quite a few years to develop that. They want you to come in with pediatric and adult experience, and they would like for you to have ER and ICU experience. So I did adult ER, and then I did pediatric intensive care. And then when you come in, in order to get the job, I had to do like a written exam to see that I knew what I was talking about. And then they run you through multiple scenarios. And so lucky for me, I was going to paramedic school while I was applying for this job. And so I was really up on the skill stuff because I was studying for my national registry. So you do airway stuff, trauma, burns, they run you through all kinds of scenarios. And then if they see how you do in those scenarios, that's whether or not you get the job. So when you come in, you should already have a base knowledge. There's a lot of, I'd say the orientation, I think is about three months three or four months before you're out on your own. And you do, you go to the operating room and you put breathing tubes in people. You go to different units in the hospital and learn from the nurses in those units. If you haven't worked in units like that, then you take mm -hmm. something, you know, that you might not have known before that. And then a couple weeks of didactic training in a room, death by PowerPoint. And then they start to put you on the aircraft with a preceptor. And at this point, I've been a preceptor a couple of times. And so basically, um, in the aircraft, the pilot's obviously always up front. And when we're going to a call, one of us is up front, one of us is in the back. When we have an orientee, the orientee will ride in the back. Um, when we get a patient, if they're stable enough that I'm comfortable being with that person who's new, then they can ride the call with me and my partner will sit up front. Um, if it's a really, really sick patient and they're not that far into their orientation, we'll have them sit up front my partner and I will stay in the back um, just because it's you can't play around when they're super, super sick. So um, but we do that for a couple of months and you hope that you get a lot of flights and they'll sit there and they'll look and see, have you had a lot of scene calls? Have you you know, is it wintertime and there's a lot less calls? Summertime is obviously our trauma season. Um, and so if you've had a lot of calls um, and you feel like you've learned a lot to this point, then they run you through. Um, what we call boards. And so you have boards with the education team. They run you through scenarios. We have some mannequins that we use to do that. And then if you pass that, then you get to go to boards with our medical director and the medical director will sign you off and say, Hey, yes, I'll allow you to practice under me. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's thorough. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes sense that they're not just going to put you in there if you have no experience. They, they want that it's not technically clinical experience, right? Or would it be called clinical? Yep. So clinical they want you experience. to have clinical okay. experience. Yep. Um, but then also because you never know who you're going to be picking up. It could be a woman. It could be a child. It could be a man. Mm -hmm. It could be elderly person. Yes. So yeah, you wouldn't want to have someone who just specializes in one. Yes. Um, now, we always say that we're the jack of all trades and a master of none. And we go from womb to tomb. So we can get there. And the reason why I went into pediatrics, mm -hmm. you know, Michael came to me one day and said, he had actually filled up my application to the pediatric intensive care unit. It was back when we had paper. And he said, here, read this and sign it. And I said, what are you doing? He's like, well, you're going to the PICU now. And I was like, I don't want to go to kids. Like, you're crazy. And he said, Ezra, you might show up on a wreck one day and a baby was thrown from the car seat and that's going to be your patient. And you want to be the person who is not nervous, who's not scared. Mm -hmm. And 
boy, was he right. It's really nice to have that grasp with children that a lot of people are scared of. So <clears throat> you brought up something that I think is really interesting just to talk about the dynamic because you said you were going to paramedic school mm -hmm. and obviously you have EMTs as another standard of care. Mm -hmm. You have people with just basic uh, first aid and, and CPR training and whatnot, mm -hmm. nurses, uh, physician's assistants, I'm trying to think who else. Nurse is. practitioners. Nurse practitioners, yeah. doctors. Respiratory therapists. We fly respiratory therapists. Too. So you've, yeah. you've got this whole spectrum of, of different mm -hmm. care providers. And I know that there's, is it, would, you, would it be safe to say like a little bit of animosity or like friendly rivalry with, say, like EMTs and nurses or medics and nurses? Where medics like, and nurses. There's yeah, right? a little bit of rivalry right? there. Where, where they um, say something like, uh, like, oh, you don't do any uh, pre-hospital pre care. But it yes. seems like you're like kind of straddling yes. that world. Yes. And so- a lot of flight teams fly either two nurses or a nurse and a paramedic. There's almost always a nurse on the aircraft. Um, our team and a lot of teams in the country are starting to require that people get cross-trained as paramedics as well. And I did that. The program in Connecticut, they required that for hire. So I was taking the path that I wanted to work on that team. And so I just kind of went about my way. I got my EMT basic and then I went to paramedic mm -hmm. school in Omaha. And um, I I kind of did it on my own. And when I got to this team, I already had it. And it was nice because they eventually required it of people and I didn't have to go back to paramedic school because I'd already done it. So it wasn't a big deal. But yeah, I did it because I knew it was going to come become a requirement. But I also feel like if you go to paramedic school, the nurses don't understand what paramedics do in the field. You know, if you're working in the ER, they're coming in with this patient. You don't know what conditions they work in, what different things they have to factor safety wise, you know. Um, and so paramedic school for me gave me the opportunity to see how much work they do. In all honesty, when we get there with the helicopter, the people who've done the real work are the firefighters, the paramedics mm -hmm. on scene. They're the ones getting them out of the vehicle. They're the ones in the heat, um, out there for hours trying to pull somebody out of a vehicle in the cold. We get there, you know, they put the patient on the gurney, put him into the ambulance. And now we get to get all the, the glory for it, but really they did most of the work. So I really, going to paramedic school did that for me. It showed me to appreciate what they do. Um, and then we kind of take over from there. So the better they've done, they've set us up for success. If they haven't done so great, we're going to have to work a little harder. But they really, truly are the heart and soul of it out there. So, so now the so it's going to become the standing standard operating procedure, right, to have a medic and a nurse. It's going to become the standard that pretty much everyone who will be on aircraft will be cross-trained okay. is, is what it's kind of leading to. And, um, and I think it helps. I think it helps the nurses and then, you know, paramedics that come onto the flight team when they see what the nurses actually know mm -hmm. that we're not just, you know, in-house nurses who don't know how to do anything without a doctor there. Once they realize what we're capable of doing, I think there's a mutual respect that builds that wasn't there before. So it's really good to have that relationship. And I'm friends with a lot of paramedics and EMTs that we work with. And I feel like there's a good mutual respect. So <clears throat> you, <laughs> I mean, there, there's so much we could dissect here. Um, there's got to be a few close calls where you're on this aircraft. You've been doing it now for a number of years where something happens and I don't know if it's the equivalent of like turbulence or they say like, oh, we have a failure and this and that. Like there's got to be moments we like referring to it as pucker factor. Oh, right? yes. I've had where, those. Where you're like, oh my gosh, like 
Mm-hmm. Can you explain a couple maybe that have happened, like maybe some ones that just are at the forefront of your mind, like, oh, that was bad? Yeah, I had one um, many years ago, probably 10, 11 years ago, where we were coming into land on a ground helipad at our base. And um, as we were coming in, something happened and we hit the ground really hard. Um, so in aviation, you have a hard landing, you know, um, but it was pretty significant. It, it wasn't just a little, you know, tap on the ground. When that happened, it's crazy because it all happened. It was on video because we have cameras on all of our helipads. What was interesting was in my brain, it felt like it went on for five minutes. I literally saw the blades spinning and I felt just kind of tilting one way. And I thought the blades were going to hit the ground. And then we were just kind of rolling, right? And I literally just, oh, the blade didn't hit. Okay, I have another shot here. And then the next next thing I know, I feel us you know, pitching to the other side. Once it was over, um, all of a sudden, everything went back to normal. Once we stopped and everything was good, I assessed myself, made sure I was all in one piece. It was all good. When I saw the video of it, it literally took probably a second. And when I saw the video, I thought, that's that wasn't me. Like, that's not what happened. That's not what happened in my brain. So it slowed down. It was the craziest thing I'd ever experienced was how slow that whole incident happened. Luckily, none of us were hurt. The aircraft had some damage. We were able to fix it. But the biggest thing was the sound of the aircraft made me want to throw up after that, just because I'd had that experience. And so the next day I came in, because when something like that happens, you know, everybody's going to meet and see mm-hmm. what happened. And um, when I came in the next day, just seeing the aircraft made me feel sick. Hearing it made me feel sick. But I decided that day that this is what I want to do. And if I don't get back into this thing soon, I might never get Mm -hmm. back in. So we were doing hot fuel training, which is we fuel our own helicopters, the med crew does, while the pilot stays in the cockpit. And so we were doing hot fuel training, so the aircraft was running. So I just went and sat outside the rotor system for about 15, 20 minutes watching people do stuff. And then I decided it's now or never. So I got on the radio and asked my pilot, can you take me up? And he said, absolutely. And one of my coworkers got in with me so that I would have support. I always appreciated that. And we took off and we went and did a bunch of takeoffs and landings. And I came back. All was good. I went back to work the next day. So some people don't ever get back on. Um, Mm -hmm. The girl that I was flying with that day, she never never got back to it. But she had the perspective that she was brand new. And so she had only worked there a couple of months, and then this happened. For me, I had been working there probably five years at that point. And so I knew that in five years, this doesn't happen a lot. This was a rare thing. So I think that my perspective, that really helped me to Mm -hmm. get back on board. And I've... I don't get scared when I get in that aircraft. I really don't. I feel safer up there than I do driving around town because people are out here drunk and <laughs> high. And, you know, I I trust most pilots more than I do most people out here on the road. So, yeah, people, yeah. people look at helicopters with this just confusion. Like, how does that thing not spin around? Like, how, do, how like, I know that there's that rear rotor. The and tail the, rotor. Yeah, the tail yep. rotor. And like, like, it shouldn't. It shouldn't fly, you know. We, like, somebody once said to me that helicopters beat the air into submission. Yes. And I've always loved that. I think that's great. But yes, we're not supposed to be flying, but we are. And it's really cool. I've only been on a helicopter one time in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was in Mexico uh, filming a, a pilot for the History Channel. Hmm. And they were like, oh, you don't have to wear headphones if you don't want to wear headphones. I'm like, okay. So I remember <laughs> like, I was like, I don't want to wear headphones. 
if I'm going to be on camera, I want to look like cool guy getting yeah, out right. of it, you know? So uh, I get in the, the front seat and the front seat doesn't have a door on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I've got my seatbelt on. All but, right, yeah. And when that thing picked up and it, I don't know if it lurched forward, but like it leans yes, forward. Yes, the tail always goes up when you start to go. And yeah. I'm just looking at ground and I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? And uh, I was like, this thing is awesome. And then they 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 land and they put me up on this plateau and they're like, okay, for the sh- next shot, you're going to marshal the helicopter in. I'm like, I'm going to marshal the helicopter in? And they're like, oh yeah, all I have to do is stand there, have your hands your up like this, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So, uh, so they got me up on this plateau. This helicopter is right in front of me. And they're like, and make sure you cover your eyes when this thing comes down because you're surrounded you're by- You're going to get everything in your eyes. Including yep. cactus- you know, so oh, there's God. cactus everywhere in Mexico. That's awful. So, uh, so I'm there and I'm marshalling this thing in, but I'm trying not to look more Asian than I already am, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I'm like, this is crazy. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, when you approach it, uh, what's the rule? Like don't approach from the front. So they want you to approach between, so everything is a clock position in mm. the aircraft and it's based on when you're sitting in the helicopter. And so we want people to approach between the 10 o'clock and two o'clock because that's where the pilot can see. You don't ever want to approach from anywhere where the pilot can't give you the okay to come in under the rotor system. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and those blades are intense. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had, I've had people tell me, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to get anywhere near a helicopter. That thing's going to take my head off. I'm like, yeah, I probably could. You know? The nice thing, they, most of them have like rigid rotor systems now, mm. so they don't bend as much. I mean, when I first started, the aircraft that we had was a Bell 230, and we had a couple Bell 430s. And those were, I know the 230 was two blades, and it would kind of dip down a bit. But now um, we fly an EC-135s on my team, and the rigid rotor system, you don't really have to bend down. You're not going to have to worry about your head being cut off. But you do want to make sure before you enter the rotor system that the pilot knows you're coming under because if he is doing something, um, you, he'll make sure he levels the blades out so that nobody's at risk. But yeah, so you're always, you always got to get a thumbs up and I'll stand there if he's not paying attention and I'll just stand there with my thumb up and wait till I get the okay. But he's, you do not do anything without his permission. So. Oh my God. What, yeah. what other stats do you know about this helicopter? Because I mean, you've got to know the speed. You've got to know the range of it. Like, yes, what? we usually fly at about 120 knots, which I think is like 150 miles per hour, mm-hmm. 140-ish or something. Um, and I couldn't tell you the gross weight of it, but I wish I had a pilot that I could refer to right now with me. But um, no, I mean, it's 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 actually a very light helicopter, and they, they purposely make helicopters light. If you open up a door on EC-135, it's not like the military aircraft. Those are much more, they're heavier, they're more mm-hmm. rugged. Um, they have to protect you from more, obviously. Whereas ours, if you opened up the clamshell doors in the back, they're kind of like floppy doors. And you're just kind of like, why is this thing so? Well, they do it that way because they want it to be less weight that they have to lift. So the more weight, the less weight we have with the aircraft frame itself, the mm-hmm. more we can carry. And so more fuel you can put on board, all that stuff. So it's actually kind of like a really light helicopter in relation to other, you know, big helicopters, military stuff. Have you ever thought about changing your seat in that helicopter and getting your pilot's license? Oh, I've thought about that. But What's stopping you? Well, cuz it's a lot of money mm-hmm. and it's a lot of training and I love what I do. So I'm like, "Hey, I get to I get to fly in a helicopter and, you know, so that's pretty much it. I mean, I get to fly in it and I don't have to control it and that's cool. But I will say that we learn a lot of stuff from our pilots and our pilots learn a lot of stuff from us. Um, funny story that I have to tell you yeah. is, um, so most of our pilots are military guys. They're, they're ex-military, usually retired. And um, I had this one pilot many, many years ago who we were at an air show 
and we were just showing off the helicopter. We do a lot of PRs. And this guy was a Vietnam era pilot. He had um, the flying cross and he's very well decorated. He was a mm -hmm. dust off pilot. So we're at this PR and we're just shaking hands and eating food and talking with everybody. And somebody came running up to us and said, there's a pilot having a heart attack and he's about to land. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Nate. Welcome to the show. I'm going to take just a few minutes to talk about some of the sponsors of today's podcast. The first sponsor I'll talk about is Ketone IQ. And Ketone IQ is drinkable ketones, something our body already uses to one extent or, the, uh, or another for an energy source. Having this ready-to-use supply has been kind of a big deal in the middle of my day, specifically uh, when I'm feeling that, that midday crash. Uh, this isn't for keto diet uh, people keto diet practitioners. I'm certainly not a keto diet practitioner. There's uh, little to no carb restriction in my lifestyle. There probably should be a little bit more of it. But I've been using the two fluid ounce bottles that have about 10 grams of ketones. I mix that in a in some pineapple and some orange juice in the middle of my day, kind of make a midday motivational cocktail. And my favorite part about it is the mental energy that I get through it. That's usually the hardest part about getting through the middle of the day is I feel uh, cognitively crushed. So when I have this energy source that feels a little bit more uh, for body and mind. I don't feel the same fatigue and cloudiness that I might get uh, from other energy sources. So uh, the other thing I've noticed a lot is I have a lot better recovery using Ketone IQ. I like to do a lot of high-intensity interval training. I usually have one session of that a day. A lot of times I like to stack or layer swimming sessions or jiu-jitsu sessions on top of that multiple times a week. So using Ketone IQ has made it a lot easier to start getting through my week and tackling a lot more of that training session. But if you're interested in trying it out, you can go to hvmn.com and use the code FIELDCRAFT at checkout, and that'll save you 20%, which is a pretty awesome deal. I've looked around, and I don't know where else that exists, so head on over and take advantage of that. So this pilot was in a biplane and was coming in, and somehow he got this thing on the ground, and then he collapsed. And so we grabbed all of our stuff from the aircraft, ran out to the tarmac, pulled him out of the aircraft, started doing CPR and everything. Well, my partner and I, as we needed things, obviously there's a crowd around us. And as we're needing things, like people are just handing it to us and, you know, people were really helpful. So after a while, um, we've been coding this guy. All of a sudden I looked at my partner and I said, you know, what else can we do? We've done pretty much everything at this point. So our pilot turns and says, uh, you guys want to give him some bicarb? He's been down a while. So I, I looked, I was like, okay, good idea. So we, we give some bicarb, it doesn't work, unfortunately. But afterwards, I said to the pilot, I was like, how'd you know that? He said, do you think I listen to you guys do this for 40 years and I don't learn something? And I was like, that's crazy, but they, they do. And a lot of the pilots will... They'll always ask us afterwards, like, what was that? What happened? Mm -hmm. You know, what'd you guys do? Man, you sound you sounded like rock stars back there. And they have an appreciation for what we do and they like to learn it too. Same with us. I mean, survival-wise, it's good for me to know what he does so that if something goes wrong with that pilot, mm -hmm. I know what to do. So we do some training scenarios where we'll talk about, okay, if if the pilot suddenly falls out, has a stroke, has a heart attack or something. We have autopilot on our helicopters, so we what? can, yes, we always fly with autopilot. We have all types of avionics in our aircraft. I'm really grateful to my, the team that I fly for because we've never had anything less than the best. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, we have autopilot. So they teach us how to, you know, set a heading and how to contact air traffic control and tell them that we're in distress and they'll get somebody on the radio to help us out. And it's surely not going to be a very nice landing but we might be able to survive. So, 
Uh, aside from that, like mid-air emergency, mm -hmm. have you ever had a patient come to on the aircraft and you're like, you're in the air? I mean, I mean, or do you, or do you have like a practice where you sedate them heavily when you transport them, or like what, what's this? If somebody is, um, generally, if a person is alert when I get to them and they don't need to be sedated and all is good and they know what's going on, most of the time they look out the window and they enjoy the ride and you know, mm -hmm. um, most people, I've never had somebody really become really uncooperative unless it was a patient who had like a head injury and didn't realize that they were being uncooperative. But those patients will normally, I, I do have medications to give them to calm them down. Um, you know, if you take care of someone's pain and anxiety while mm -hmm. you're doing this, they're usually not going to turn on you. So, um, so I have, you know, we have all kinds of stuff in our, in our med bag that we can give to keep people calm. And, but I, I haven't really had any issues with that so so nothing nothing midair mm -mm. um the one hard landing yep and obviously you change pilots all it seems like mm -hmm. all the time um is it very similar in a way to like uh like the fire department like what are you doing when you're not getting called so we have our bases mm -hmm. and um our bases are pretty much at airports at this point because we figured out many years ago that if you have bad weather come in if you can fly by instrument into an airport ifr conditions um that that's going to help you out you're not gonna be stuck in the middle of nowhere so we're based at airports um we keep our aircraft in a hangar uh, it's a, a huge investment so it's better to leave them in there covered mm -hmm. and taken care of and so yeah we have kitchens we have a living room we have a we have a charting room where all of our computers are and that's where you do all the work stuff um but yeah we're on for 12 hours or more um if you get a late call but yeah we we do education there's constant education to do to keep up with what we do um a lot of us work on committees a lot of us do um meetings all that kind of stuff that you know every job has but we do have downtime and it is nice because some days you don't get a flight at all sometimes you don't go anywhere which is great somebody didn't need you um, other days you're flying all day long with no breaks in between but we're very much like family and mm -hmm. we all hang out together and you know we'll just kind of sit and talk and and we just wait for a call to come in it's very much like the fire department what is it like I'm just I'm just imagining this like do you have any indication of what a scene is going to look like before you get there like do they paint the picture for you like hey there's going to be you know multiple racks or like or is it a surprise I mean it's it's always a surprise yeah um we might get a heads up if there's multiple patients <clears throat> so our dispatch center will the fire departments on scene and EMS on scene are the ones who decide if they want us or not. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes, some counties that we work with will put us on what's called standby. And that means get ready. We got a call on 911. Sounds like it might be bad. We might need you. So while we're on standby, we gather, we carry blood products. So we, gra we grab our cooler with the blood products. We get our medication bag. We get into the aircraft, pull it out of the hangar, and we just wait until mm -hmm. they call and need us. Um, we do have an auto launch policy where if it's greater than 20 nautical miles away from us, that we will automatically start, automatically head there. Nobody gets charged for anything if we get canceled, but it saves minutes. So we try to do that if we know it's farther out. And then sometimes dispatch will tell us what it is. They might say, you know, it's a multiple vehicle crash. It might be gunshot wound to the head, stabbing, um, if there's more than one patient and they're sending multiple helicopters, that will usually get your adrenaline pumping because you're like, this is probably a pretty decent scene. 
And then we don't really know much until we are about five minutes out from the scene. We call the person that's going to be our landing zone. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're setting up the landing zone for us. So we call them on the radio and we ask them, where are you landing us? What type of surface are we landing on? Um, what size is the landing area? Sometimes you're landing in someone's front yard. Sometimes you're landing on I-40. Um, you never know where you're going to be landing. Um, a lot of times we use the, if there's a local hospital nearby, we'll use the helipad at that hospital mm -hmm. just because we know it's safe. But so they'll give us a brief, an LZ brief is what we call it. And let us know what we're looking for. And then we circle it once or twice to make sure there's no wires or trees or towers that we're going to hit. And then we'll come in and land. We really put our lives in their hands on the ground. So we do a lot of... Um, LZ operations classes for the fire departments so that they know what we need to land safely. And if we're circling and we don't think it's safe, then we will just abort. We'll, we'll tell them, you know, hey, we don't feel like this is the right spot for us. Is there anywhere nearby we can move and go instead? So we work really closely with them on the radio to make sure it's a safe scene. <laughs> you just said uh, you don't get charged. I yeah. know what it costs for an ambulance ride. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're talking like not even a far ambulance ride. You're paying out the wazoo. Yeah. Do you know approximately how much it costs for a helicopter ride? I kind of do, but I'm not going to say it. All companies are different. Yeah. All companies are different. Um, I do know that there's basically like a flat cost for them to, to take off and even do the transport. Mm -hmm. And then I believe that they the cost is calculated based on how much we had to do. So they look through our charts. We always have to do a chart after a transport and they look and see what equipment we had to use, you know, how much this, this and that. And they base it off of that. I can honestly tell you, I have never, ever known the cost of a flight. Um, but I've heard what the cost is for the base for when you take off the base pay. But um, I will say this though. I had somebody ask me that one day at a landing zone class that we were doing and somebody asked that question and I said I I honestly don't really know I know it's a lot um I think insurance covers it sometimes I don't know because I'm not on that side of things but there was a man there who we had flown um he was actually a paramedic that I knew and we had flown mm -hmm. him when he had a heart attack and he turned to the crowd and he said yeah it cost me a lot of money he said but I'm here to tell you about it and I will never care about having to pay that bill and I just really that kind of touched me because I was like it's it's true I mean it stinks when it costs a lot of money my mm -hmm. father died of cancer I know what the medical bills were like but um he was just really grateful that we were there for him when he needed us and he said I don't care paying that bill every month doesn't bother me at all <laughs> so yeah it's it's all a matter of perspective yeah, right it is um, totally a, a late friend of mine used to say if Money can pay for it. You don't have a problem. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you that's think a, about oh, that's it. that's a good one. I right? like that. Like you think about it. Like yes. you said your father died of cancer. My yeah. mother died of cancer. Yeah. No amount of money is going to fix that problem. Nope. You know? Nope. So if money can pay for it, you don't have a problem. You don't have a problem. Um, you can always make more. You can always mm -hmm. find a way. Exactly. Um, you also just said, before I get to these, mm -hmm. these questions, you also just said that you carry blood products. Now- mm -hmm. We have a little friendly rivalry going between our Utah office and our North Carolina office. Mm -hmm. We have a blood drive coming up. Oh, great. Can you explain for the listeners who may be on the fence of like, oh, I don't know if I should get blood or not. Can you explain the value of giving blood, like what it allows you to do in your job? Um, blood is incredibly life-saving. Um, we keep plasma and packed red blood cells. And we're moving towards keeping whole blood. Whole blood is obviously the most natural thing. You're not taking the, the red blood cells and plasma are components of blood, but not actual real blood. Um, like, I mean, whole blood. And so 
we really count on it. I can't tell you how many times a year that I use that blood on those patients. And somebody could be going downhill super fast. And that is our focus now. It used to be airway, breathing, all that stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. Airway is still very much on the forefront of it. But before I can put a breathing tube in somebody, my medical director wants me to just bag that patient if we have to, give them the blood first, because that's going to set us up for better success. Because when you give somebody medications to put the breathing tube in, it'll drop their blood pressure. So if we give them the blood first, when we suspect that there's bleeding, whether internal, external, mm -hmm. whatever, if we give them that first, get their blood pressure up, then go and put the breathing tube in, we have much better outcomes. And so blood has become a really big topic in the trauma world. You can't replicate human blood. Um, and so human blood is really, really, I mean, I have saved countless lives administering that, wow. that if I didn't have it, I really don't think that they would have made it. So I really do encourage people to go give blood. I wish I could, but nobody will try sticking me for blood because I have bad veins and I beg them. I'm like, I don't care. You can hurt. It doesn't matter, but they won't take my blood, but we do. We need people to give it. Yeah. I encourage everyone to go out and give blood, but I also encourage people to, uh, not intermittent fast before you before give blood. you do it um this may have happened, then you're gonna pass out <laughs> it, it, may, it may have happened to someone who you know whose name rhymes Sitting with, across from me with devin destrella <laughs> um, i will say that maybe someone was intermittent fasting and just dropped like 10 pounds in a week yeah and, not a good idea and i maybe this person or whatever it was me uh maybe this person <laughs> gave blood uh at 12 30 and when they asked well when was the last time you ate i was this is after i had passed out mm. uh, <laughs> should have like, asked that before like, when was the last time that you ate i'm like ah, oh, yesterday at four oh. and they're like sir you didn't have dinner or you didn't have breakfast I'm like, no yeah. and the funny thing is i passed out and they're like they're like you sir you passed out i'm like i did that's hilarious they're like you're not nervous i'm like Oh, no, I get choked out a bunch of times in jujitsu and they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, but, uh, but that never happened to me. I've given blood probably two dozen times in my lifetime. Yeah. Never once got, got ill. But after that time, oh my God, I, uh, I had this like warmth sensation come over my body and I'm and like, also, Ooh. I'm going to, I'm going to go out and get some air. And by the time I walked out of the bus, I was on the ground and they're, and they're like, sir, we have this juice for you. So I'm holding this tiny little juice box, <laughs> sipping on it. And it was the greatest thing in the world because it got me back to where I needed to be. I actually remember a blood drive at Bristol Central one time and I had gone to give blood and I don't know who it was and I wouldn't I wouldn't say your name yeah. if I knew. But I remember somebody passing out and just laughing and just being like, that's hilarious. But yeah, it happens. It happens a lot. It, yeah, and it so be prepared. Eat food. Drink eat water. Food. That's not that's not a that's not a recommendation. It is uh, an imperative yeah. like you have to have food yeah all right so before you got here i had put out to the world of instagram i said mm -hmm. hey who has questions for a flight nurse mm -hmm. and as you can see we might have gotten a handful of questions here yep. um yeah a whole bunch yep and i'm just gonna read maybe five or six of them okay. uh, unless there are some that you want to choose oh no go ahead and okay well i know there was one that asked me what i carry right for, yeah. for personal protection yeah. i am shamelessly saying I am a big Sig Sauer fan, actually. Excellent. I carry a P238. Ooh. I love it. It was my wedding gift. Um, he's gone, but the gun's still here. So that's good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I love SIGs. So I figured I'd, you know, give them when you were saying that they were, uh, they were sponsoring. I'm like, yes, I love Sig Sauer. They're the best. Outstanding. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Uh, this one is from river underscore rat MJ. Uh, what do they wish small fire departments knew about their procedures? Um, basically, all we want them 
to know the biggest thing is knowing how to safely land us. So knowing how do you protect the scene, um, you'd be amazed how many people, animals, all kinds of stuff could breach your scene and really put people at risk. So one of the biggest things is is setting us up somewhere where they're going to be able to control the crowd because there's usually going to be a crowd. Sometimes we're landing on a highway, so you got to make sure you don't have cars coming under the rotor system. Um, so we, like I said, with our outreach, um, and my best friend Robbie does outreach for our base, so I'll give her a little plug there, but um, we do LZ Ops classes to teach them so that they know what we expect and everything goes smoothly on the ground. Um, as for what we do medically, we don't expect anybody to know what we do medically, um, but they're always great to assist us. They always want to help. They're always asking what they can do. And if it's something that they can't help us with, absolutely. We'd love to pull them in and get the help. So, but the biggest thing is landing us safely. Okay. Next one comes from Dolly Golly. How do you not suffer from rapid elevation changes? We don't go that high. So we basically fly at probably like 1500 to 2000 feet usually. So we don't have like really high elevation issues. Um, at the base that I fly at, we're kind of at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm -hmm. So when we go, sometimes we go up into the mountains and we get to see Mount Mitchell and it's beautiful and Grandfather Mountain and all that stuff. I, I love flying up there. But um, so we'll maybe go up to like five, 6,000 feet and you really don't have to worry about oxygen or anything like that till you're at 10,000. So we don't really have to deal with that. We don't ascend super quick or descend super quickly. So it's not a big deal. This next question is one of, I think six or seven, seven that Bonneville 007 asked. Oh, yeah. So maybe we'll answer a couple okay, for yeah. this person. Uh, are you for the second amendment? I think you already answered I that. I am, I am. Uh, fixed wing or roto, already answered that. We do fixed wing, rotary and ground. Okay. Yeah, so we have some jets and we do you know cross country flights. I've been all over the country and in the jets and that's been fun too. Next two questions. Mm -hmm. uh, what trauma gear do you carry off the clock? I don't carry any, to be honest with you. I know that sounds kind of, you know. We might have a store where you can pick some up. I, I believe yeah. there's a place right, yeah, here, right here. And it's happening. called yeah. Fieldcraft, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Yes, I hear it's okay. So I don't carry anything. So maybe after this, you'll have to show me what cool <laughs> stuff you have that I can carry on me yeah. so that I'm prepared. Yeah, you'll be teaching us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is a serious question now, super serious. Yes. How do you cope with lives that can't be saved? That's a very good question. Um, here's, it took me many years to realize this. Um, and I, it, it's, it was hard. You always have some that hit you really hard. Um, the good thing for us, like I said, the first responders, they, they do all the hard work. They're the ones who see these people, um, in the terrible conditions, um, going into people's homes, seeing the stuff that I don't usually have to see. And I struggled once because I had to go into a person's house. And when I saw pictures of their family oh. and the family members screaming in the corner that I will never forget that call. So first responders, kudos to you because every day you're dealing with that part of it and we don't as often. But what I decided years ago, um, I can't take the credit when we save them and I can't take the credit when I don't. So unless I've done something blatantly wrong to cause their harm, which I don't think I mm -hmm. ever have. I do my best to do the, the best care I can provide. Um, but sometimes there's nothing we can do. Sometimes we can throw everything we have at this person and it, they just weren't meant to make it. Um, and so you sort of, I hate to say it this way, it might sound impersonal, but I go into a call thinking of them as a body that needs my help. And if you're not thinking of them as a father, child, husband, you know, whatever, it's less personal to you. Mm -hmm. And so you just go in, you do what you have to do. Now, afterwards, if it's a bad call, 
Sometimes you need a minute. And I will say that my company really supports that. And recently I had to fly a pediatric patient who did not make it. And when we finished, I was standing at the, at the desk in the ER filling out paperwork. And I, my partner came up and just said, are you okay? And I was like, no, I need a minute. And I stepped aside and I went and cried. Um, a few minutes later, my boss called me. Somebody in the ER called our administration and said, I think one of your nurses is struggling. Well, we both were. Mm -hmm. And um, that meant the world to me because they really cared about the fact that it bothered us. And my leadership was there to support me and make sure, you know, hey, if you need some time, take some time. If you need 30 minutes, whatever you need, we got you covered. They know that it can hurt sometimes. But, yeah. and, and almost as a follow-up, this one is from Shellfish Media. Mm -hmm. Best ways to detach, prioritize, and execute under stress. Yeah. Basically what I said before is I, said. I detach myself from the fact that they're of who they are. Um, and then it hits you afterwards. I always respect who they are, but it usually is after the fact. Here's one for you. Sam 2001 underscore SDP. I've always wondered whether aid given by civilians is more helpful or detrimental to their efforts. It's always going to be helpful. If somebody gets to somebody quicker than we do and can start life-saving measures, it is never going to be a bad thing. What's your response time, by the way? Um, so we usually, we're usually off the ground within eight to 10 minutes. And then it depends on how far we have to go for that. Um, but people on scene, people, for example, I have one patient, I'm actually very close to them and, and they have signed permission for me to talk about their case mm -hmm. and everything. Cause I'm very proud of this one. Um, I was called to transport a girl who was 16 weeks pregnant and in cardiac arrest. And, um, her husband is the one who saved her. She went into cardiac arrest at home. Her husband heard a thump, went upstairs, started doing CPR on her. If he had not done that, she wouldn't be here and neither would their son. Jeez. And um, she was incredibly sick. And that was one of those situations where you can't think about the baby. You got to think about mom because if mom doesn't make it, the baby mm -hmm. won't. Um, and so we worked really hard on her. She was she was really unstable the whole flight. Got her to the tertiary care center that we work for. And she was there for a while. They figured out what was the issue with her heart. She got a defibrillator pacemaker put in. But they said, you know, the baby has a heartbeat, but we don't know how it's going to be. You know, what what kind of things are going to happen to him. When he was born, the night he was born, somebody I work with knew her mother. And this person sent me the picture. And I'm happy to say that he's perfectly fine. And we vacation together and we hang out together. But I always say that her husband was the one who absolutely saved her life that day. Because if he hadn't done anything, she wouldn't be here. Neither would he. So, wow. yeah. Uh, let's do two more. Mm -hmm. Um this one is from Philip Hathaway. I see all these med kits out there. What should we actually buy? So this is one that comes up frequently. People are like, oh, I bought this first aid kit from Walmart mm -hmm. or I bought this first aid kit from CVS. It's got all this stuff in it. There's a whole bunch of junk. Like, what do you recommend people should have around the house? So uh, the biggest thing that civilians can do um, is, have you heard of the Stop the Bleed Oh, initiative yeah. of the yeah. class. Yeah. Uh, our instructor, Jerry, actually is an instructor and he's going to be teaching it here. Yes. The, Stop, yeah. the Bleed, Stop the Bleed is really important. And there's a lot of classes out there. It's a big movement across the country. Having a tourniquet available is one of the biggest life-saving things you can do. Somebody's bleeding out. Stop that bleed. Call for help. Um, 
Other that the other med kits and stuff, I can't say that I have much experience with them. I, I carry the top of the line med kit with me everywhere I go when I work. So I haven't really looked into civilian mm-hmm. med kits. But but the biggest thing I would say would be the tourniquet. I think you can really, really save a life. Um, I've also seen some devices where you can suction out a foreign body that somebody might be choking on. Oh, no kidding. Um, which I think are really cool. Um, so knowing how to do the Heimlich knowing like if you have a device like that that will suck something out of their airway those are the kind of things that you can just any given person any day can save the life of somebody next to them so last question from the audience uh this is from one mike taylor worth it real pros and cons i'm an er nurse debating going that route 100 percent worth it i have been flying for 16 years i still love it every single day and the I know there's going to come a point where it's physically going to be hard for me to do it. You know, we're getting old and, but I hope and pray that I can do this forever because it is the best job. I, I sit there and think sometimes that people pay money to fly in helicopters and I get paid to fly in a helicopter. So it's just, it's amazing. And you get to touch so many lives. You get to see so many different places. Like I said, we have the airplanes. Mm-hmm. I've been all over the place and gotten to experience many of the States, some other countries. Um, and it's nice to it's nice to learn how to be a nurse outside of the hospital and you know paramedic or whatever but to be able to do things independently is just so empowering and just really it's a rush and i i love it and i would tell anybody who's interested in going into it that it's it's an amazing career there hasn't been a tv show ma- been made about flight nurses right like they have nurse jackie and they've got like a couple of the other ones there was many years ago a show that i saw and it was it was actually hilarious because the pilot was an EMT and then they had like somebody in the back and the pilot would be like flying the aircraft and then reach over and do medical stuff. No, that's not how it's done. Um, what a lot of people who don't know what we do is they're always surprised is how we we don't grab the patient and get into the aircraft and go. Um, we often we always pretty much uh, the patient will go into the EMS ambulance on scene and we stabilize the patient there mm. before we get into the helicopter. If you ever look into one of our helicopters, they're not big. Um, and so it's really better for us. And, and we balance between speed and staying on scene. And you have to judge that case by case. Sometimes we call it, you know, scoop and run. You take them, you go, you know, you have to get out of there quick. Other times they're really unstable. Let's work on getting them stabilized before we get into the aircraft because it's always better to have you know, you have the the paramedics and EMTs, the firefighters, you have all these hands mm-hmm. helping you. When you get into the back of the aircraft, it's just you and your partner. So it's a lot harder for us to, it's more time consuming to get things done because it's just two of us. Um, we, as our policy is that we don't load a patient into the aircraft if they're needing CPR. We can't provide as effective CPR as people on scene can. Um, so what we do in that instance is, um, We'll continue CPR. We'll often get our blood products and take it with us, and we drive to the closest hospital. If the patient, if we get circulation back before we get to the hospital, our pilot is usually meeting us at the hospital helipad, and then we'll load. Um, but we do not load them if they don't have a pulse. Because it's just their chances of surviving are low anyway. So it, it just seems like the job is one where 
I mean, every day is an adventure. Like mm-hmm. the, it, yes. the the more you describe it, it sounds more and more like that's the word that fits it best. It's mm-hmm. adventure. It's it's excitement. It's adrenaline. It is. You know, and yep. I think about my friends who are nurses, as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, mm-hmm. in the ER, and they say, "Oh well, I've been playing games on my phone." Yeah, right. You know, and I'm like, like Jesus, how bored are you? you yeah, know? right. Um, totally depends what ER you're working in. I can ex- promise you that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and. And it just sounds like it's a it's an exciting career. It's a it's something that people should consider if they want that adrenaline yes. rush and, and have a job that's truly fulfilling. Yep. Um, what else should we know? I mean, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Or final words of wisdom from a flight nurse. I'm not sure. I mean, whatever your passion is, just you know, go for it and don't think twice. You know, like I told you when we were talking earlier, it's just you were put in the right place at the right time. I was mm-hmm. put in the right place at the right time. I don't ever doubt that. That. If you want to do something and you dream about it and you pray for it, it's it's going to happen. You just got to work for it. And I'm really happy I did. I'm glad where I end up. I'm glad you've ended up where you oh, where yeah. you are. I mean, you're meant to be here too. So, um, but yeah, if you dream something, just go for it. And See, I was thinking you were going to end with be happy with what <laughs> you have while you work for what you want. Yes. Well, that's a big thing. You have to work for it. It's not just going to be handed to you. And, so. and, yeah. And I agree with that. I think you yeah. have to earn it every single day. Every single you know, day. If you, yep. if you get into a place of complacency at your job, people are going to be like, that person's a slacker. It's like, you no, know, you do your job yeah. every single day, best of your ability. And people are going to be like, damn, they're good. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's true too. Complacency. Wise, I mean, we you can't go to work every day thinking you already know it all because mm-hmm. those are those are dangerous people. So we're always challenging ourselves to be better, learn something different. Medicine's always evolving, so stay on top of things. And when you you know when you come to the job and you know a whole bunch of stuff that others didn't know, you're going to stand out and we'll want to hire you. So awesome. Yeah. Well, I I love what you're doing. It's it's so cool to to reconnect after all these yes, years. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Just so you guys know, Desiree came to my old high school when I was teaching and she came into the class in her flight suit and all the students were like, that was awesome. You <laughs> yeah. know, like, yeah, so I, I can't remember who invited me, but somebody had invited me to come and speak at the school. Um, it was kids that were studying the medical mm-hmm. side, I guess. And so, yeah. And I was thinking, I was like, wait, I think Kevin teaches here. So I was walking yep. through the halls and went and saw all my old friends that are now teachers, which is just crazy. Um, because they all drink. <laughs> I, I sit there and I think, man, if you only knew how your teacher used to be. I know, right? Man, I'll tell you, I got stories for them, but no, it's fun. Yeah. So, all right, guys, um, listen, flight nurse, awesome person, North Carolina resident. I. Uh, Excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for uh, having me. If you guys have any questions, shoot them to me and I will pass them on to Des so that way she doesn't have to deal with any weirdos out there. Yeah. No weirdos, please. All right, guys. (laughs) This has been the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.